They say that all in love is fair All oh, but you don't care You'll know what to do When it gets holy November 5th, 1955. Yes, of course, November 5th, 1955. Why, I don't get what happened. <laughs> that was the day I invented time travel. I remember it vividly. I was standing on the edge of my toilet, hanging a clock, the porcelain was wet, I slipped, hit my head on the edge of the sink, and when this is what makes time travel possible. The flux capacitor. Flux capacitor? It's taken me almost 30 years of my entire family fortune to realize the vision of that day. My God, has it been that long? This is, uh, this is heavy duty, Doc. This is great. Uh, does it run like on, on regular unleaded gasoline? Unfortunately, no. It requires something with a little more kick. Plutonium. Uh, plutonium. Wait a minute. Are you... Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Hey, 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 keep rolling, keep rolling there. No, 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 this sucker's electrical. But I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity I need. Doc, you don't just walk into a store and, and buy plutonium. Thank you, I Fight Dragons, for that amazing, amazing theme, the Power of Love uh, cover. Uh, welcome to Graphically Novel Time Traveling. Uh, my name is Josh Wasta, a.k.a. Fallout Fieri. And with me is uh my co-pilot uh you're you're slightly younger than me so you're not it like we don't have the age difference of doc and marty uh <laughs> but i'll definitely give you the marty in this uh it's mr will asbill how you doing will doc doc <laughs> doc this is Great scott <laughs> <laughs> and i've got my lovely wife ann asbill here as well uh, we watched Back to the Future stuff multiple freaking times. And if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, we're going to see some serious shit. <laughs> very, very nice. Uh, yeah, so Back to the Future 1 and 2 uh, are our first actual time travel movie. Mm -hmm. let's, uh, let, let's just jump into it, man. What do you got to say about this starting, beginning? Um, well, let's just go and go over the ba basics of it. Anybody can pull up on Google or IMDb. It was rated PG, uh, released in 1985. It's a sci-fi comedy runtime, an hour and 56 minutes. Uh, production company Zamblin Entertainment, produced by Bob Gale, Neil Canton, directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, and music by Alan Silvestri. And fucking just dominates. My it's God. Box office, like for that year, it ran for eleven months. Well, and for for good reason, right? Yeah. The the cast, the plot, the uh, music, everything's a banger in this movie. The editing, yeah, absolutely. And what was really insane though was uh, research on the budget. Budget says nineteen million. Box office at three hundred eighty eight point eight million. That's yeah. three hundred sixty nine point eight 
million return on your investment there. That's fucking insane. And that's after they had, what, a $30 million budget cut yeah. to get the movie made, which ended up being more expensive than that with the reshoots, given that initially Marty was supposed to be played by Eric Stoltz, which, yikes. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm a person that only really knows Eric Stoltz from The Prophecy, like mm. in a little bit from uh, from Pulp Fiction. And so, wow. Yeah, that's a much different movie. Yeah. Apparently and... when they were filming, they, they knew it wasn't working, but he interpreted the movie as a tragedy. And that was the tone he was bringing to the film. Oh my God. Wow. This is like <laughs> when we talked about... Being overly serious and Crispin Glover being Crispin Glover on yeah. set. <laughs> yeah. Which, okay, we talked about this with Groundhog Day. How is this done straight? Like, <laughs> there's no way it would work yeah. at all. It's there are parts that are just would be creepy and weird. If they were playing it straight, it would be very unsettling. And I don't think anyone would sit around to the end. Right? Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, so, I mean, for those who do not know the plot of mm -hmm. Back to the Future, um, which, I mean, it, it not everybody has seen it. My wife, who could not join us today, Miss Jennifer Howland, uh, watched it for the first time four years ago and for the second time last night. So, wow. uh, yeah, and has never seen the second one. I watched the second one right before we recorded today, and she's out at, at an event. Um, she has not seen the second or third one. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and she was an 80s kid, too. But she was in, like, late high school, early college when this came out. Wow. So she just never saw it. In deference to her, if you've seen the first movie, you've already seen approximately a third of the second movie. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, this isn't uh, this isn't uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night two by any means, but it it there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot reused. There definitely is, especially uh, which was the evidence for the lawsuit, which we'll get into in a little bit uh, oh, when it came to the second one. But uh, let's talk about the first one. Um, yeah, like you said, well, came out of nowhere, really. Uh, nobody really knew about this. Michael J. Fox was just on the rise. Um, and uh, kind of a phenomenon. Oh, definitely. It went from nobody knowing like really anything about it to all of a sudden it just took the world by storm. Right. And then proceeded to do so for the next half of the decade into the beginning of the 90s given that I, it was all like one property. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I probably watched back to the future three almost as much as I watched any other movie, uh, growing up. <laughs> it's so much fun. Yeah. And, uh, and all started with the idea between Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who met in college in cinema, I think it was two ninety, And then 15 years later, they actually get the chance to make it. But Honestly, when you watch all the behind-the-scenes footage about this movie, it could have failed at the casting. It could have failed at, like, you know, knocking the rights. It could have failed at fucking Zemeckis almost. Because Universal had to trick trick them into giving the other studio, giving them the rights. To yeah, yeah, movie. yeah. They had to pull some, like, shit where, like, uh, one studio was doing basically a crime film. And there's like, wait a minute, this is double indemnity. We don't have the rights of double indemnity. Like the legal lawyers were like shit. So the producer 
over at Universal yeah. was like, wait a minute, I want that Back to the Future script, so I'll let them have that if they give me. And then he just picked two scripts. That way, they didn't know which one he was actually angling for. Yeah. And then they made Back to the Future and made history. Yep. Because it's pretty much a perfect movie. Like, I can't think of any beats that don't work. It's really well paced. It's incredibly well performed. It's very clean. Yeah. It's it's very, very clean. The the only scene that I could think of that that maybe didn't need to be there was the the initial scene, the amplifier scene in yeah. Doc's lab. Uh but it is also used because we don't meet Doc for twenty minutes into the film. Yeah. Um, but we understand who he is by that, you know slow moving of all the clocks and all of the mechanisms that he's created that he's left on. I think it also gives you an idea of who Marty is as well and their relationship that there's clearly a lot of familiarity there in spite of the outward oddness of their friendship. (laughs) Right. I mean, he has, he has, Marty has keys to, to Doc's house and, you know, because that's that's one of the first things is he shows up and he's like, oh, man, what's going on? And he's very familiar. Yeah. Like you said, the, it, it establishes a relationship, but th- that's the only scene that I can think of kind of running through it in my mind that you can take out. I would agree. Well, I don't know. Maybe the uh, Marvin Barry call to his cousin, because that just invites some weird things. But that'll fuck with your head when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, that's that. joke. And we're going to imply that a white man wrote Johnny B. Good. So we'll take that from him. <laughs> Welcome to the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Michael J. Fox, we mentioned, uh, and while this is primarily a, a time travel podcast, we're also going to talk a little bit about, you know, because we're cinemaphiles. Um, Mart- or, uh, Michael J. Fox had been on uh, Family Ties for three years at the point that this movie came out. And yeah. he filmed this back to back with Teen Wolf. Before this, other than Family Ties, he had only done guest appearances on like Trapper John, Night Court uh and uh other tv shows and he had just wrapped filming on team wolf because they were actually doing location scouting for back to the future at the time that team wolf was wrapping in the same locations yeah they were shooting so he became aware of it at the time that they were just doing initial scouting and the the family ties producer didn't even want michael to even fucking hear about this movie Mm -hmm. like so dead set on having Michael focused on family ties for some godforsaken reason. Well, it was a huge show. And it was, yeah. Honestly, the work ethic that that showed of Michael to be working all day on a TV set, mm-hmm. <laughs> hopping in a station wagon, sleeping in the back until he gets to the Back to the Future set, working until four o'clock in the morning, hopping back in a car to get back to his other set. That's crazy. Yeah. For months. But honestly, when you... If if you don't know shit about what's going on behind the scenes, you don't know anything about them trying to get this movie off the ground. If you just watch this movie straight, like your tablet or offset, you can tell everybody on that film shoot put their best into it, especially the actors, like everybody, like they did their fucking work. Like they showed the fuck up and they believed in this project. Yeah, no, completely agreed. There are there as I get older, I when I was young, I was just 
paying attention to Michael J. Fox, right? He's he's the character that I'm supposed to be watching and empathizing with and, and following and everything. But man, Christopher Lloyd and Tom Wilson walking mm-hmm. watching back through, um, and Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover. I mean, there are some amazing performances in here. I would say it's probably Leah Thompson's best performance that I've ever seen. Not that I've seen a lot of great performances from Leah Thomas, but this was good and had a lot of depth that you wouldn't expect in a comedy. Also, apparently uh, during the casting call scenarios, Crispin Glover, he showed up in a taxi. He wasn't in the back of a taxi. He was driving the taxi for the casting call. That's awesome. He was late. (laughs) But it's Crispin Glover, so, you know, that just makes sense. Oh, God. (laughs) Also, during the the casting process, apparently Johnny Depp, Ralph Macchio, John Cusack. C. Thomas Howell also... from The Outsiders. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's C. Thomas Howell from Kinder the Embraced. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> you right. I should have put the better movie. No, okay. it's C. Thomas Howell from that movie they made in the 80s where he actually did blackface. Okay. Oh, no. No, no one remembers that? Nope. That was, uh, that was rightfully... And it's uh, it, it's stuck somewhere in history where nobody remembered it. But thanks, Ann. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm here for that. Also, did you know that the the time machine originally was going to be a lead line fridge? Did not know that. Yeah, it's going to be a lead line fridge, and the way they were going to actually send Marty back to the future was. Put him in the lead line fridge and then set off a nuclear explosion. You know, like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Like that. Is it just Anne's job to bring up movies that we don't want to remember on this <laughs> podcast? Is that just... I just think it's funny because Spielberg was involved in the production. And then decades later, in the worst <laughs> Indiana Jones movie ever, he's like, you know what? That was a good idea. Let's do that. <laughs> and what do they have in the third act? A giant fucking spider. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So while you were talking about Leah Thompson uh, and while we're just talking about cast stuff, I discovered that this is where my brain um, has broken from a young age um, for some reason because Leah Thompson is in this and Elizabeth Shue is in the sequel. Um... And somehow Christy Swanson got thrown in there. I cannot remember which of those actresses is in what in a lot of the 80s, early 90s stuff. Um, the only other thing I really remember Leah Thompson from in the 80s is Some Kind of Wonderful, which with Eric Stoltz, because apparently they were dating and they were dating at the time that this movie was cast. So they brought on Eric Stoltz. And in the interviews, she was pretty sure she was only given a chance at the role of Lorraine because she and Eric Stoltz were in a relationship. Mm. And then she ended up being, by and far, the much better casting choice for that role. Yeah, and the, man, the prosthetics, the makeup that they go through, um, amazing, especially for the 80s. You know, we're talking about uh, a 40-year-old movie. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is with the prosthesis, like they had on Lorraine, like the 1985 version of her, she couldn't laugh. If she laughed, that would break the prosthetics. So, ah. and there was points where Crispin Glover is like doing that. He's doing the slap in his knee, big ah, 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 laugh at the TV. And apparently she was trying not to crack the fuck up. Oh, yeah, it. absolutely. <laughs> Which really, 
I mean, it really kept her facial expressions very subtle, but I thought that worked for where her character was initially in the initial 1985 timeline, which was not happy, not good. Are we talking about like... Also, it brings some questions about just her general character with her whole 1985, I never blah, 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 I never blah, blah, blah. And then we get the car scene within the dance and she's like, it's not like I've never parked before. And apparently her bedroom window is Grand Central Station for peeping Toms because her dad has hit multiple boys. Is it multiple boys or just boys keep falling out of the tree in front of his vehicle? That's still multiple boys peeping Tomming on his daughter changing in the house. True. It's true. Yeah. And that just brings up questions like we actually were having a conversation. We'd watched the movie or clips and we're like, what the fuck is up with Lorraine? Like, what is going on with her? What's going on with this town and Lorraine? Because it's either <laughs> she has the blinds open and she doesn't know people are peeping on her. And it's an open secret with the teenage boys at that high school. Or it's an open invitation, and she knows what she's doing. Uh, I kind of feel like it's that latter. And then she's saying, like, you act like I've never parked before. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? Well, that's what you always told him, <laughs> Mom. <laughs> it's the it's the do as I say, not as I do approach of parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I would still say, though, probably the MVP performer for both the first and the second movies is... Tom Wilson. Yep. I mean, he underrated man. Roles in one movie. Yeah, he has to play the foil in in this entire fucking franchise and nail it every time. Yeah. And still, you don't like him, but you don't. The only time I hate Biff is when he's trying to force himself on Lorraine. Other than that, uh, he's really most like, of his his guy. most of his Trump Biff in uh, the second one. <laughs> yeah it is very trumpy oh god yeah no that was 100 percent the the uh motivation he was supposed to be trump and uh lorraine in that uh in that alternate timeline based her performance off of uh tammy faye baker ah that makes so much sense doesn't it although she should have had more mascara on right absolutely um so i want to talk about a particular scene here and get your guys' opinion on it, all right? So it's the, Marty's just got done with the whole clock tower, say the clock tower scene, the guitar solo scene, and it's him coming home scene, where he's he's going to the line estates and the car is being hauled in by a salvage vehicle. It's fucked. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you get the interaction between the first introductions of Biff and George, 1985 versions. Um, what do you guys think about that scene? Well, that's the first Biff and George at all. Yeah. Um, because we don't see that until until the, he goes back, and this is before he goes back. I found it strange, but not for the reasons I found it strange as a kid. Like, okay, so when I was a kid, my strangeness was, um, that's weird. He let, like, apparently he, you know, your boss can crash your car and and stuff like that because i didn't understand the world as an adult i'm like okay so there was no police officer at a crash scene that had to tow it away you don't get to decide whose insurance pays for that yeah (laughs) maybe the hill valley police are very relaxed (laughs) and they just didn't get there in 1985 so 
yeah, that's that's the experience I had when I was younger. I didn't notice it. But now when I'm here, here at this time, I'm just noticing like, Jesus Christ, the cycle of bullying and manipulation never fucking stopped for George. Yeah. And who knows how early it started because we know what was going on in high school, but it could have started as early as grade school. And if you're told that you're weak and pathetic and a coward and worthless and only good for this on that consistent of a basis, because clearly he doesn't really have a lot of support at home if Marty is able to sneak into his bedroom in the middle of the night. Yeah. yeah you know, you're going to internalize that and then in turn take it. And Marty can't understand that. He's sitting there watching, like, why doesn't he say something? But I think George at that point, honestly, doesn't know how to say anything. He's just internalized all of this negativity and truly believes that about himself. That's that's the quality that drew Lorraine to him because he was so helpless. So he's got that at home from his wife, probably from his kids by proxy, mm. from his bully that's followed him from school to the professional environment. That man has nothing. Yeah. We are, we are looking at a man that is either dead inside or on pause and cannot catch up because he's not only doing his own work, he's doing the business reports for this fucking asshole Biff Tannen. Like Jesus, like if you actually take time, you could write a dissertation just on that one scene. I mean, I can understand how Eric Stoltz would gather this is a tragedy, but also you can't play it like that, but it is very sad. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it before. And I've been, I've been kind of quietly reflecting on it while you guys have been mentioning things, but the, circle of bullying is a really interesting thing to focus in on that i never would have focused in on when i was younger because why would you it's a time travel movie oh no but, no it's the bad guy marty's the good guy and it's just very straightforward when you're at that right age. and and george would pass those traits and does pass some of those traits on to marty which we see earlier with his fear of rejection and everything but it's Doc's influence, which is has kept him from that cycle that has started, as we find in the third one, you know, all the way back in the Wild West um, between these two families. Uh, and it's it's Doc's words of you can do anything you put your mind to. That's what Marty tells George back in 1955 that actually helps him actually. and breaks the cycle. Actually, it's the mayor in 1955. The first time. The first time. It's it's uh it's Willie that tells him like, hey man, why why don't you stand up for yourself? Goldie. 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 What? Yeah, yeah. Goldie. Goldie in the in the uh diner. The diner. Yeah. But it's later that Marty tells him you could do anything you put your mind to, which is something that Doc asks. It says, "What do I always tell you, Marty?" And he says, "I can. You know, you can do anything you put your mind to." So mm-hmm. he's, that phrase is also told to George you, because you would assume that Goldie would have said that no matter what, because the bullying happens no matter what in the yep. diner. So Goldie probably said that, and George probably, probably just this happened. Yeah, dozens, if not hundreds, of times at this point. And he's also a black man in 1955, constantly beat down by society for existing. Yeah. But what a great way in the 80s, what a great way to to at least touch on that because it doesn't harp, it doesn't go too into it so that the racists in in the 80s, you know, the Reaganites uh throw a fit, but it's he's like I'm going to be mayor and the guy who owns the diner's like yeah, a colored mayor. That's the that only really time that that's addressed 
and then it completely moves on. At the very end, we get, but it's again from people we are not supposed to respect from Biff's hooligans. They use a racial slur to refer to the uh, Starlighters. Carlota oh. Starlighters. Yes, which normally I would have been like, oh, that didn't age well, except for the it response. It worked in the 50s, and they're terrible people. Right, but also the response where five oh, God, of them come out of a car and says, who you calling that, Peckerwood? <laughs> like, yeah, now it's on. <laughs> Like, oh, you thought you had a, a little bit of a push because it was three on one. Now it's like six on three and they're all full grown men. What you going to do? Right. Also, I was kind of confused because like Billy Zane's here. Why is Billy Zane being a bad guy right now? Billy Zane's supposed to be cool. <laughs> um, Did you see Titanic? Billy Zane sucks. Oh, yeah. Also, <laughs> we were like so close to having Billy Zane be Biff Tannen instead. I don't think that would have worked as well. Tom but Wilson it, like, did such a good job. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, he gets set to background character, which is fine for me. What I found really effective, the way that even just the small changes, him convincing George to stand up for himself and have some self-confidence and belief. Yeah. That influenced everything because his and Lorraine's relationship started out differently, started out on maybe more of an equal playing field where she actually has respect for him and reflects that respect towards him and views him as sort of her savior. And then you see their relationship in the future and it's loving. And she's not clearly trying to drink herself under the table with a water glass of vodka. <laughs> it's, it's just interesting how those like little things, you know, it's very like, it's a wonderful life kind of moment. Like yeah. you matter, but like so many things changed from like two little things. Yeah, I was actually trying to like in film analysis, you're trying to like pinpoint exactly what the point of a film or a project is. And the best thing I could come up with was teenager creates new timeline. But there's so much more than that. Well, it's... I mean, look at Bob Gale's initial basis for the script. He was looking through his dad's old yearbook from high school. Yeah. Saw that his dad was a jock. Bob was a little bit more of like a nerdy person. And he was like, man, would I even have been friends with my dad in high school? Like, what was my dad like in high school? And from that, they spun this whole time travel adventure comedy that is still relevant nearly 40 years after the film was released. Yeah. So, and the next idea I had was, wait, no, it's a teenager that unintentionally gets access to time travel and saves his family, uh, technically. Because right now, in 1985, the car's fucked. George is miserable. Uh, his brother's working. I'm going to assume it's like some fast food re retail chain. His sister can't get a date. And mom, Lorraine, is drinking. Counting back, look like, what was it, vodka? Cheap vodka. Cheap Papa vodka. vodka. <laughs> Not good vodka. <laughs> Hawkeye vodka. Yeah. <laughs> Clean the paint off the walls. <laughs> yeah, and Lorraine goes to booze a lot. Whenever her life sucks, she's drinking her way out of it. <laughs> this is true. Not good for her liver, but true. Am I the only one that wished that Lorraine had a, like a little bit more like character depth to her as well? I know George, like we get the indication that George actually is interested in like writing and science fiction and all that stuff. And we don't really get that kind of final prompt until we see the published book and the altered reality. But I was wondering what else like Lorraine wanted in her life, honestly. Yeah, I would have liked to see a little bit more agents. Sorry. <laughs> no, it would be a lot better. I mean, 
but also in the defense of the filmmakers, adding on more to the runtime could yeah. potentially make it clunky. You're right. It's the 80s. They liked to do short ass movies and movies that were entertaining popcorn flicks. And that's exactly what they made. And luckily, they actually kept this under the two hour span. But there's so much damn action sequencing and great editing cuts. And Alan Silvestri just fucking owning the musical composition of this film. Oh, the scoring is perfect. You're it's like, perfect. I don't care. Let's keep going. <laughs> As a movie, it's just wonderful. Which is probably why she works so well, because you enjoyed one so much. You don't mind revisiting that concept because yeah. you had so much fun there in the first place. Also, wait a two does a lot of Easter eggs for three. It's yes. interesting. Because <laughs> I know they're shooting it all in the same kind of timeline production. Like, I think shooting two and three was, I think somebody said, like, a year and two weeks. Yeah, they did it back to back. Yeah. And exciting. originally the, the Pitbull uh, hoverboard was going to be called Mad Dog as a an homage, like, to what was coming. Uh, <laughs> but they, they decided that that was a step too far. I love that line. Which I think is funny because initially they didn't even want to do the sequel. Yeah. And then the production company tells them, well, we're making a sequel. So either you're in on it or we're still making the sequel without you. And then they come back with two scripts. <laughs> They're like, all right, you want to make more? Here we go. Alternate titles that were considered for this movie that were in process. Professor Brown visits the future. Fine. That's fine. A little, <laughs> little clanky, a little long. Gets the point across of what you're doing. But then, then, um, what was it? Sidney Scheinberg suggested Spaceman from Pluto. <laughs> and, so Bob, the Bobs go to Steven Spielberg. Like, what do we say? We can't name the movie this. Is he crazy? So Steven Spielberg sends a message back going, Sidney, great joke. All of us got a huge laugh out of that. Keep them coming and just embarrassed him into silence. <laughs> awesome. But, but to be fair, Sidney Scheinberg actually had some decent suggestions. For instance, they changed the mom's name to Lorraine in the script. Which and, was Sidney's wife's name, so that's kind of sweet. Yeah. Way to like win points with your wife there. Get, get her name in the script there. Yeah, yeah, she'll love it. And uh, what else? He also, instead of calling... Uh, Doc, Doc, instead of calling him Professor Brown in the script, they were like, no, let's call him Dr. or Doc Emmett Brown. Just go with that because I can't remember what. They thought it might draw too many comparisons to the nutty professor. Ah, uh, yeah, that's fair. Oh, that old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they in kept... the oh, go ahead. In the first one, Christopher Lloyd is doing a little bit of, of, uh, of the nutty professor mm -hmm. oh for sure very jerry lewis s absolutely <laughs> all right but if you wanted to if you wanted to try and surmise the movie how would you surmise it at least the first one like in a short sentence fun 80s action comedy blockbuster with a nod to time travel nice because the bobs wanted to make a movie about time travel but they didn't really explore a lot of I think the scientific material related to time travel and mm. some of the problems inherent in their ideas of time travel and how that would work. So scientifically, it's a huge mess, <laughs> even though they try to science it. We are but not it's still a very entertaining movie. I still had fun watching it. I've seen it probably a dozen times. Still enjoy it. 
still laugh at the beats. It's it's a fun movie. But how do you bre- break the cor- chrono distortion? Flux capacitor. But how do you break the time barrier? Flux capacitor. But how do you repair? How do you do this? Flux capacitor. Shut the fuck Mac- up and sit down. Enjoy the movie. Also, MacGuffin, like, MacGuffin capacitor. Caribbean terrorists. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that fucks with me. Before um, you hold on, before you go there, I have mine. My yeah. my encapsulate time travel parent trap. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot better. Starring Michael J. Fox and Michael J. Fox. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Libyans, uh, <laughs> the Libyan terrorists. Whoo, there's a time capsule. You know, I will say they didn't. It was not obvious to me that they had cast like white dudes to play people from the Middle East or anything. So at least, you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't take that good of a look. Yeah. So but I don't think they were being, especially given that it was the 80s, too offensive. The, uh, the results, uh, actually, I had a 20 year um, consequence of this movie because I grew up in, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and never saw a Volkswagen van ah. uh, like driving around. So right. for 20 years, I called them Libyan vans. Oh. <laughs> and my parents never corrected me. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm okay. So, so, now. so you never had those awkward in- interactions with people where you called it that and they were like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> Not until like 2005 <laughs> where I was talking to somebody. Uh, I was... Uh, yeah, yeah. I had moved back from Los Angeles, and I saw one driving by. I was like, "Oh, it's a Libyan van." And they were like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "You know, made in Germany." What? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, that's oh. priceless. I call them hippie vans, but I would have paid money to be in that interaction, man. I would have pissed myself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's beautiful. Oh, um, shit. What was I thinking? Anyway, oh, yeah. Wait a fucking, the first five minutes of that goddamn movie, part one, they just fucking drop drop a bunch of fucking shit on you really fucking quick, especially with the news, the yeah. uh, the TV turning on. They're like, nuclear research facilities denied the rumor that a case of missing plutonium was in fact stolen from the vault two weeks ago. And then the and skateboard. The Libyan terrorist group. Right. And then the skateboard <laughs> hits the plutonium. <laughs> which may be one of the only editing flaws because doc calls marty later and says he uh he forgot something at his lab and it's the video uh, camera yeah where did doc then get the plutonium because mm-hmm. it was back at his lab <laughs> i hadn't even noticed that before. oh my god i do like the way that they do that though because it avoids a lot of unnecessary exposition <laughs> that would have just drug out the movie also the libyans aren't even the bad guy in this mo- movie they're just like the I mean, weird side quest you gotta they be kind of are because they end up being the side quest but initially that is the quest marty goes back in time to save doc yeah <laughs> that's what he went for yeah and then the whole weird i'm gonna make out with my mom in a car thing Kind of sprung out of that. <laughs> well, to be fair, when you notice your dad is a peeping Tom in a tree and he drops out of the tree and gets hit by his grandpa's car and gets knocked the fuck out. And then mom's like 
Florence Nightingale effects, falling in love with them. I'm like, this is a thing? She took him up to her bedroom and took his pants off. Why? I've never seen purple underwear before. Oh my God, Lorraine, calm the fuck down with the thirst. Why did you take off my pants? <laughs> Excuse. There's a lot of weird sexual assault adjacent stuff happening in this movie. This is and a did she take movie? <laughs> and did she take George's pants off in the original timeline? Oh. Yeah. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about Crispin Glover without pants. <laughs> Would he shake it like a pool noodle? <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> I saw I saw him in the remake of that mouse movie. Oh. The rats movie. Whatever that Willard. is called. Willard. Willard. I have a rat phobia, so that was a very uncomfortable experience for me, and now Crispin Glover makes me feel weird. And what if you have a rat phobia, why the hell would you watch Willard? Like I have never seen arachnophobia for a reason. <laughs> I don't know, because I like to scare myself. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I like to scare myself too, to a certain point. I'm never gonna watch arachnophobia. I've read the uh the synopsis and that's good enough for me. Oh, you don't like the deadly deadly spiders? <laughs> no, I do not I do not like spiders. <laughs> Same here, bro. <laughs> they kill pests. I, I like spiders when they're smaller than a quarter. When they're smaller than a quarter, great. When they're it's like a brown recluse? Sure. Smaller than a quarter. <laughs> you know, you just agreed that you liked one of the most poisonous of the North American spiders. Look, if it's poisonous and I die, I die. That's fine. I just don't like spiders that are larger than a quarter or as big as my hand. Sorry, venomous. Or basically, if you take a spider and you make it bigger than a quarter, I'm going to be leaving. So we're <laughs> never taking a trip to Australia. Noted. Yeah. And we're right. never visiting the desert for camel spiders. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh god um, so going into the second one before we get into uh the time travel and science elements uh i yeah. wanted to talk about the sequel to this movie uh created some legal uh established some legal precedent uh moving forward for all actors okay and that is because for the sequel they offered crispin glover about half of what they offered leah thompson and tom wilson um and made sure he knew that it was because crispin glover had been critical of the ending of the first movie about how uh everybody was happy because they had stuff and money mm -hmm. and he didn't really agree with that um which is why crispin glover is not in the second or third Back to the Future movies. Uh, he was, uh, in fact, played by... Oh, hold on. I had it up. Of course I did. And then I lost it. That was like Jeffrey Wiseman or something like that. Jeffrey Wiseman, yep. And they used the prosthetics that they had used on uh, Crispin Glover from the first one uh, to make it look more like uh, Crispin Glover. Uh, so Jeffrey Wiseman is always upside down or you can't really see him or they're using footage from the first movie that is Crispin Glover. Yep. Uh, Crispin Glover ended up suing a lot and that is why there are likeness rights now ah. in movies. In deference to the filmmakers, I think that they kind of did that intentionally as well just to not have Crispin Glover come back on because there were a lot of other stories from set about how he was a nightmare to direct. He had a lot of opinions like Eric Stoltz, but also for one example, the cafeteria scene where Marty's trying to talk to him and he's, you know, being very passionate and crisp and glovery. Mm -hmm. Apparently, 
at the time that they were trying to shoot this and film close-ups, he would not stop bouncing up and down in his seat, taking himself out of frame, to the point that the director had to threaten to duct tape him to the seat if he would not stop moving. They did that once. (laughs) So I think there were other issues. I mean, it's very interesting, the likeness rights and everything. Like, that's a really cool part of Hollywood cinema history. But also, I think they just did not want him there. Right. (laughs) So uh, anything else to say on this before we run down the big three? I think Crispin Glover was incorrect about his his summation about one. About the end of one? Yeah. I don't think that they're happy because they have stuff. I think that they're happy because there's a much different approach to their relationships and their family. It's coming from a much healthier place. And that kind of radiates influence everywhere. And also... Instead of being stuck working underneath Biff, doing his homework for him still in a professional capacity, he is living out something that he's passionate about, that we see that he's passionate about in the movie itself. He has to be home on Saturdays to watch his sci-fi theater show. Like That's something he cares about, and that's something that he's instead doing for a living, so he has fulfillment in his life and family. And completely agree. I think it's a byproduct. It's in in Reaganomics era 80s, how do you show that people are happier? Well, they're playing tennis and they have cars and their house is cleaned up and you know they have somebody that's waxing their car out in the front. And it just happens to be the old high school bully that they've taken pity on. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if I'd want to see my attempted rapist on a regular basis, but okay. Right. Like, that's a weird of Crispin Glover's character. To, that's weird of George to do. Like, hey, you tried to rape my wife. Now I'm going to have you come around and clean the cars. Ah, that Biff. Always right. trying to get away with something like raping my wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, I actually made a little bit of a, I wrote down a couple sentences for my thoughts about what exactly kind of happened here, at least with George. Uh, unintentionally, Marty puts George McFly on the path to not just start a relationship with Lorraine, Lorraine to solidify, solidify his family's future, but to finally stand up to Biff Tannen outside the parking lot of the dance and stop the cycle of bullying and exploitation. George does doesn't just stand up for himself, but he finally makes the conscious decision to mentally mentally wake up and not only just stand up to, for himself, but to protect someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And that's reflected in the rest of his life because he's no longer afraid to do things like submit short stories for, for his science fiction. Um, yeah. That fear is, is is overcome with Biff, who really like we said is the the recurring theme you know not just in george's life but going back to the mcflies and the tannins and going forward you know if things stayed the way that they were going to all of that uh yeah this this family is basically just terrorized by this other and so breaking the cycle is what makes that happiness yeah, so we get to see like somebody go from like I'm going to assume it was like looking like lower middle class to kind of like more of an upper middle class at least. 
But then there's questions of like, why is the older brother who's, a, who's in a business suit and looks successful still living with his parents at home? And same thing with the sister. If she's doing successful, why is she still living at home with the parents? Because movie. And if they're not there, how do you show that they're happy? Right. That's fair. Maybe and, they uh, just well, come over and eat their parents' cereal. Yep. <laughs> Family <laughs> breakfast. It's very important. Right. And at least now Lorraine won't drink as much because she knows that her man will knock a motherfucker out that tries to assault her. Yeah, I didn't see any giant handles of vodka laying around the house yeah. in the revised 1985. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe so she's in AA. I actually did some research here from a Mental Floss article. Did you hear about this one? No. And it was, oh, it was from Bob Gale. Uh, and it was in an interview where he actually established that Marty, uh, and it, when he's like age 13 or 14, he, their excuse for him meeting Doc was he was a red-blooded red American teenage boy, 13 or 14 years old. He decided to find out just why, and they're talking about Doc Brown here, why this guy was so dangerous. So he sneaks into Doc's lab and is fascinated by all the cool stuff that was there. And when Doc finds him, he, Doc is delighted that Marty's actually interested in all the shit he's doing. And they both feel like the black sheep in their, like, in their environments. So Doc hires Marty as a part-time job to help him with like experiments, take care of the lab and take care of the dog. Or chimpanzee as it was originally supposed to be. Yeah, the dog was supposed to be a chimpanzee as well. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) I do love dogs, but I do love chimpanzees. But at least the dog doesn't rip your goddamn arm off if it's pissed off. (laughs) Listen, that was a couple isolated incidents. (laughs) And also, the Jordan Peele film, nope. Look, dogs just t- test better with audiences, but still, I don't like them putting the dog in a remote-controlled DeLorean that has time travel capabilities, all right? I will say, I like that Bob Gill gave some thought to what had probably been a frequent criticism of, like, well, how did they even get together? But also, that reads a little bit to me, like, J.K. Rowling, after all the Harry Potter books came out, being like, and Dumbledore was gay the whole time! <laughs> like, okay. Oh, God. Well, yeah, I think that's my final thoughts, at least for one. Uh, Andy, any other th- thoughts for one? It is a fun, breezy popcorn flick that the entire family can enjoy, which is saying something because it's a PG movie in the 80s, and that can mean family fun, or that can mean tits in the first 15 minutes. It's really a crapshoot. <laughs> or it can mean gremlins. Or it could mean gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say, uh, watching this last night, Jen was taken aback by how many times in a PG movie they say shit and asshole. Yeah. Ah, the 80s. What do you want that forehead? Um, okay, so the big three. Let's let's run this down to the big three. Uh entertainment value. High, very high. Ten out of ten. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's extremely high. It's it's a fun movie. Uh Jen was saying maybe there's a little bit of nostalgia uh wrapped up in there. I'd say that's fair. The whole eighties was very much about that like 50s and 60s nostalgia, but I don't think it did a disservice to the film at all. Right. And I think there she's are a lot more of the movies that have that where it's a disservice to the film. I would be interested to like get like an 18-year-old kid now that has never seen Back to the Future watching it and kind of seeing their thoughts on it. Because I mean, I was steeped in Back to the Future from the time it came out. I think we own the the VHS very quickly after it came out. Because it's just always in my house. All three of them were always in my house. Um, and I 
damn near wore out the third one. Um, but yeah, entertainment value is extremely high. Uh, it, like we said before, very few flaws in the movie. Very solid. Um, yeah. So moving on to the science, what do we feel <laughs> about the flux capacitor? Oh, love the magical MacGuffins or the super science MacGuffins that just, you know, yeah, you're putting a clock on a wall in your bathroom and standing on the toilet and you slip and knock your head on the on the bathroom sink and then you wake up and you just figure out how the science to shit out of this. I really appreciate that about Doc Brown. <laughs> science by concussion. I mean, that aspect of it is pro- obviously like a nod to Isaac Newton and the Apple gravity thing. Like, ah, yeah. Scientists have had weird Eureka ideas for less, <laughs> but scientifically. You know, you have Palm Springs where they brought in a physicist that like theorizes about all this and actually has knowledge. You can tell, you can tell that they had no base of scientific knowledge for this movie. It's fun. It's funny. The science is bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much where I am is is like lights equal time lights in almost peace upside down peace sign equals time travel. Uh, the science is not good, although it is it is a, an early precursor of just repeat to yourself. It's just a show. I should really just relax. Good note. Good note. <laughs> so finally, results to the space time continuum. Um, pretty fucked. Uh, yeah, yeah. At least at least in a localized area. After one, not so much. After two, pretty fucked. After one, you've got a branch timeline. Yeah, I mean. That's how that would happen scientifically, from my understanding. It would branch off. You can't change something. You can make an alternative. Right. And and credit to the second one for really being the first time I can remember branching alternate timelines being explained in a movie. Yes. Yeah. That um, was a big improvement. Um, but so I think the space-time continuum is fucked in and how it is being done. Um, I find it interesting that changes are not instantaneous um that it takes time for time to adjust uh, to things like the photograph fading um but one of the big questions that i had and i was not shocked to find out that there are other nerds like me on the internet that had the same question it's been a long time since i watched back to the future 2 when old biff steals the time machine goes to the past but brings it back. Why does he go back to the original 2015 that he left from? Because here's what's going to happen. I don't think the timeline officially changes until Biff uses the book to make a bet, which according to the news story we saw did not occur until 1958. Why he sat on it for three years before making a bet. I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't old enough was the story at Biff's uh, casino. Yeah. So he went the first day he was old enough to to make a bet. Yeah, that makes sense. But but that's I mean it should have changed instantaneously, but that's the only pseudo explanation I can reasonably give. Yeah, the way this this concept of the timeline tra- travel universe is very it seems very malleable, and it just it doesn't seem to replace any timelines. It seems like the traveler can go to the past, make some changes go back to their current time where they actually exist and they can just keep playing that role of that of who they were right however scientifically if we're creating a branch reality where all of a sudden he becomes 
rich and successful, yeah, he should not be able to return to that 2015. Correct. Because right. he has time in the line that he's in and shouldn't be able to, unless he has a way to travel to alternate dimensions, should not be able to re return to his original time. Yeah, somebody had uh, brought up an observation. Uh, I think we were watching a uh, pitch meeting or something, and they were talking about like, wow, Marty's now in this completely successful universe uh, where his family's happy and all this stuff. What happened to the other Marty? Right. Absolutely. Did the I other... Like, that reminds me of the Rick and Morty episode where they have to kill the ones that are in that reality and then bury them in the backyard. No, they 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 blew up in oh, that reality. Right. They didn't kill them. They were already dead. They just had to hide the bodies. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, that... And thank you for bringing that up because it is hard to talk about Back to the Future without eventually talking about Rick and Morty, yep. <laughs> which which is Back to the Future with a little harder <laughs> science. Well, it's got a little harder. Bigger character flaws. <laughs> bigger character flaws for sure, but a little harder science to it. Definitely. Um, because there are consequences for actions, for every single action. Uh, and that's pretty much what the entirety of Rick and Morty has been is from the beginning. You know, go off, have a fun adventure, and then suffer the repercussions of that adventure. Um, but yeah, uh, when it comes to space-time continuum, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it, if if we saw like the space-time continuum blowing up out out, out of the efforts uh, that were done in boss level, um, there is no way that the Back to the Future shit doesn't do some serious damage. Oh, they missed. So many things up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even from the first one, you now have how do his parents not eventually go? Hey, remember that guy that helped set us up? Looks an that awful looks lot like our son. <laughs> Weird. Remember that dude you tried to sleep with? Yeah, our kid looks exactly like him. Hey, honey, I just heard about this new fashion line. It's called Calvin Klein. Yeah, right. You think it's that guy you met back in? You know, oh, that's weird. They have purple part, underwear that has Calvin Klein two, on it. In part two, Jennifer literally runs face to face with her future self. That cannot be good. Right. No, they just pass out. They, they just yeah. pass out. I'm like, mm, that's not what. No, no. Also, Doc you, doesn't go face to face with his previous self, but he knows he's talking to his previous self, even if his previous self. self doesn't know he's talking to him. Also, uh, fun fact, uh, and they didn't, they kind of fucked this up in the edit or just left it out of the edit. Do you remember that point in time when Doc's setting up the shit to be connected to the clock tower and the cop shows up asking about a permit? Yeah. Fucking hands him some money. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. He's like, here's my permit. <laughs> uh, so that's why I was like, why are no why are there no cops around at like 1 a.m. in the morning in this fucking place? A cab will. A cab. <laughs> oh, God. I don't need cops like pulling me over right now right <laughs> anyway uh yeah. but yeah uh shit what were we on we're we're on uh space time oh continue. yeah so yeah and actually yeah and and actually oh yeah the kind time continuum is pretty fucked here it's because destroyed. it's just kind of all over the fucking place i mean you're going from 1985 to 1955 and back to 1985 then Doc shows up. He's like, hey, let's go to 2015 because your kids are doing stupid shit, which... Why, why did he need problem? Marty? Why did he need Marty? Yeah. When his whole thing was trying to control Marty to not screw things up, you could have just done this yourself. Right. Yep. This is just 
course correcting with extra steps. <laughs> right? If Michael J. Fax was not on that screen, not as many people would have showed up to the movie. It's basically like, what if we followed, like, what, the doc the doctor's companion? But the doctor's companion was more interesting than the doctor? It'd be like Teen Wolf 2. Yeah. Jason Bateman. Did anyone go see that? Not really. Honestly. You gotta keep the original I, actor. Honestly, it'd be really interesting to see Doc Brown just by himself trying to stop Marty... <laughs> marty jr from getting completely fucked over by this gang like he's systematically taking down the gang somehow that'd been entertaining for me in 2015. <laughs> i'm like just going back to wouldn't be able to redo so many of the scenes from the first movie just in 2015. right <laughs> I, I enjoyed that thing that we watched where the guy was exploring ultimately how lazy of a sequel back to the future 2 is while still working incredibly well they're they're making jokes about how lazy it is in the actual script yeah. yes biff is is like actually looks over and is like something about this seems really familiar <laughs> now does that mean that things just tend to repeat themselves when you break the timeline like that maybe <laughs> Or, Maybe that's a consequence of all of their fucking around in time. Or there's always going to be like these points where conflict will ensue, but they're on a budget. Hey, we let's have a the skateboard chase again, but it's a hoverboard chase now. And then instead of manure, they crash into the fucking courthouse, which well, honestly loved it. Yeah. Also, that little girl saying, "I got a pit bull now." I'm like, ah. Uh, She's adorable. Yes. That's one of the I first things that's one of the first things I remember about the second movie, to be honest. <laughs> it's that line. Um so the uh the the only time that the space-time continuum is even talked about is when Doc finds out that Biff had gone back to 1955. They find out the date. They find out that it's the same day that Marty had uh had fixed stuff and gone back to the future. To which Doc says well, maybe just that date in 1955 is a nexus in the space-time continuum, or maybe it's a coincidence. I'm like, God damn it, writers. <laughs> I just, I love the fact that in two, they were clearly trying to pay a little more attention to that, sort of, but still did not adequately cover the realities of what would happen yeah. if that was what happened. Yeah, and and... I'm sure we will get way more into this when we get to our episode on butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, the question I have is when you erase a timeline, do you kill all of those people? I think it's more like a Thanos scenario. They just cease to exist. Or is it possible to erase a timeline? Yeah. Are you just creating alternatives? Right. Did this alternative always exist and just the choices that Marty makes or or assists other people in making or the actions that Biff takes just lead to that timeline. Which it gets weird, especially, I know we're not discussing three, but when you get into three and see the whole familial history, because there seems to be something about those two families that is sort of stuck in this cyclical, not real time loop, but all of this negativity. Yeah. Over the course of like a hundred years, yeah, yeah. go from 1985 to 1885. Um, there aren't that many people in the family. It's not like Hatfields and McCoys where you had like 25 to carry that grudge for 25. Years. I had a terrible thought when I was watching too. Is like, you know, you could time travel and murder Biff Tannen, 
and nobody could really prove it because DNA evidence was shit and you don't even exist in 1955. So how can they connect the murder to you kind of right. thing? But it's like, eh, that seems a little aggressive. <laughs> we already have one murderer in the second movie. We don't need two. <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, as for the, you're asking, uh, do those people cease to exist? What about like a third scenario where those people still exist, they just no longer have the memories of that particular universe. They no longer have mm. some of the things they would have bought or owned in that particular universe. Like, for instance, that family that was actually in the alternate 1985, as somebody put it as the Bifferific universe, somebody put it as. Bifferific. I call it Trump Biff. There you go. Uh, there's that family that is living in Marty's house. Yes. Because George is dead and Lorraine doesn't live there anymore. Like, obviously, when they correct the timeline, she that little girl that was in Marty's bed will, will forget about that horrible interaction and that family won't be in the house anymore and they'll probably be in a better place. Because let's, let's be honest here, that 1985 like universe, that was bombed the fuck out. <laughs> Let's also yeah. be really honest here that I think that was a little bit of a representation of Reaganism in America. Oh, yeah. And of course, it would be a Black family living in Marty's old house in the Lion Estates because white flight in the suburbs was a huge thing in the 80s. Yeah. Just right. like our government shipping crack into Black neighborhoods. Yeah. Yep. yep. <sighs> so I think it's interesting because they maintain a very light tone. It's still very comedic, but there are also reference points to where you can see that you know it's great for so-and-so but they're a family suffering uh and on that note <laughs> uh final thoughts on back to the future i'd say the entire trilogy is worth it yeah if you haven't if you haven't seen it uh or you haven't seen it in a while uh, break it out it still holds up it's it's got some really fun stuff um its version of 2015 is hilarious Hello? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I still want those shoes and the self-drying jacket. Fuck yeah! Same with that exact kind of voice programming, please. I Absolutely, I like that that voice drawing on. <laughs> but I was like, fuck yeah! Um, as a film, it's fucking amazing, and you get a n- nice head nod to the the first one, the second one. But it's a great love story, at least in the first one, where it's like, hey. I beat the shit out of this guy. Let's go. Let's go have a fucking shitload of kids, and we won't feel bad about this one kid burning a, a rug when he's like certain age. <laughs> right. One guy told us about it. <laughs> yeah, and so. again, that thing happens, and neither of them are like, "Hey, wait a minute." <laughs> I would say it's a fun film franchise. It's a pleasure to watch. Still, it's not a huge time investment. You don't have to. Be paying attention to every little detail. It's not an art film. It's a popcorn flick. You can watch it with your family and have fun. Don't think too hard about it. Don't think too hard about the sign time travel. Just enjoy the ride. Just like John Mulaney said, huh? Who's his friend? A disgraced nuclear physicist? All right, let's just just keep going. Let's go with it. (laughs) Let's go with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, high recommend. This is where I got scary in the second movie. I'm just saying, <laughs> this is where I got my All love of time. 1985 boobs, weird. You were saying, I'm sorry. I said, so this is where I got my love of time travel movies. It's probably the first time travel movie I can remember. Uh, 
I was watching this and Quantum Leap at about the same time. Oh, Ziggy. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that is Back to the Future. Um, here in uh, our next episode, we will be... Will, this is one that you suggested that I have never seen. It is the 1960 The Time Machine. Yes. Uh, classic movie. Uh, and so I'll be coming at it fresh. All right. Sweet. It's beautifully shot. I'm excited. Yeah. Excellent. And just, just give, the... uh, I'll give, give the prosthesis and the creature effects a break because it's 1960 stuff. At least this is the one with the slee stacks, right? Uh, Morlocks. 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 Yeah. Slee stacks is land of the lost. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. I've heard of it and I've seen the machine. Uh, referenced in things, but I've never actually seen the movie, so I'm I'm excited. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, tune in. Uh, when we do the time machine. Uh, but until then, enjoy some I fight dragons. Sometimes, but it might just say